As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, Episode 12. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Before we do that, have you signed up for the What Should I Read Next newsletter? Just go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. Today's guest is Kara Strickland, a food critic, writer, and former library worker in Spokane, Washington. Kara and I talk about British versus American chick lit, relatable memoir, and the pros and cons of reading for a living. Let's get to it. Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anne. It's so good to be here. Well, I can't wait to talk books with you, especially because I know in your past life, you worked at a library helping other readers figure out what to read next. So I hope you enjoy the shoe being on the other foot today. Me too. Okay. Um, let's start by talking a little about your reading life. Kara, what do you like to read? And especially, why do you read? Okay, so I think that really at this point in my life, one of the main reasons that I read is for work. Um, I do a lot of book reviewing and I do a lot of that sort of thing. I end up reading a lot and then having to do something with that information, which mm -hmm. is probably exactly what my childhood self wanted. I, I used to say that I wanted to be paid to read and I that's happening to me now, which is lovely. I think that um, one of the things that I would like to do Gosh, that's another question, isn't it? <laughs> so I would like to do with my reading life is have the opportunity to read a little bit more for pleasure and not feel like I need to be noting what quotes I need to tweet or, you know, what things would be really good to open up an article. Okay. So you have a self that reads for work and you have a self, a pure inner self that reads for the love of it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay. Well, this will be fun. Here's how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. Let's start with your favorites. Kara, what are three books you love? So as you can imagine, for a, a reader, this was really challenging for me. I, I tried to narrow it down, and, and I sort of have a book in three different categories. So other ones may sneak their way in, but this is this is where I, I landed. One of my very favorite books is uh, Still by Lauren Winner, mm -hmm. and kind of tied in that category were also um, Ruth Reichel's book, Garlic and Sapphires, and uh, Brené Brown's Daring Greatly. 
Okay, so Still by Lauren Winner. That's interesting because that is not one of her more highly rated books. Tell those of us who haven't read it a little about what the book is and how it ended up on your favorites list. Absolutely. Well, I've been a fan of Lauren Winner since Girl Meets God. Back in the day, I remember very clearly being in a bookstore and seeing the book and thinking that it it looked wonderful and eventually reading it. And I, I realized that still is very polarizing for a lot of people. It's She doesn't refer to it as a memoir, but I would say that it's at least memoir-esque about what happens when you're in the middle of your faith and difficult things happen to you and kind of how you move through that. It's a book about um, her time after her mother's death as well as her divorce from her husband. And when I first saw that it was coming out, I remember looking at it at the library in the library catalog. And being a little bit nervous, like, oh, is Lauren Winner losing her faith? Is she going to stop writing? What's going to happen here? And when I read it, I think that what I liked about it the most is that I feel like I'm there with her and she's having a conversation with me and she's being real with me and talking to me about how she got through this really hard time in her life. And that ended up being the reason that the other two books that I mentioned were runner-ups as well, is just that they're books that I felt like I really connected personally with the author as if I were having coffee with them and they were sharing something meaningful from their own life with me. And Lauren writes about anxiety and she writes somewhat about depression. She writes about um, going through hard things. And those are things that I relate to. And so hearing them put into words was really, really wonderful for me. Okay. I like it. What's book two? So book two um, is children's fiction. This was such a hard decision, but I think I'm going to go with the Penderwicks. And that is a series. So it's about these four young girls set in modern day, but it has kind of a timeless quality. I feel like it, Mm -hmm. it reminds me a lot of, um, uh, Edward Eager. Is it Edward Eager or Edgar Eager? I always get them mixed up. I think it's Edward. I think it's Edward too. So it reminds me of Edward Eager. It also reminds me a little bit of you know, kind of E. Nesbitt a little bit, just that sense that there's not a lot of technology that's mentioned and you you kind of think it could be the 50s, it could be the future, it could be any time, which I love. But the characters are so precocious and clearly defined. And I feel like they're sort of friends. My daughter's reading The Penderwicks right now. My 10-year-old is. Yeah. For the first time. Where is she in the series? She's on book one. Okay. I will say that the fourth book, which is the most recent one, The Penderwicks in Spring... Um, was way more intense than I expected it to be. There's a leap in time between the last book, so the third book, and this book. It's like several years. And so the young character, Batty, is like a tween. And she actually has like a depressive episode throughout most of the book. So just be aware of that. It's probably going to spark some conversations. I was, I cried through the whole thing. I was wondering if you were one of those people who who is jealous about others who are having the experience of reading a beloved series for the first time. Absolutely. I think I'm like that with Harry Potter. I can just, when I, when I'm speaking to someone who's just started it or I'll I'll always be like, okay, where are you? Tell me exactly. (laughs) So I can vicariously read it again for the first time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I hear you. Okay. What's book three? 
Alrighty. This one is in the British chiclet category. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Honeymoon Hotel. It was hard for me to pick between all of these, but this is a book about a woman who is, she's a events manager at a hotel that sort of has a storied past. It's kind of a boutique hotel that does a lot of fun events and she's dating a food critic. And basically there is nothing more that I could want in a book. <laughs> I'm a food critic and I really like parties. Did, and so I, I didn't thought, know that about you. It would be perfect. Oh, did I, did I not tell you that? Uh-uh. Yeah, that's. I mean, of... you probably did. And I probably thought that you were being facetious. No, it's one of my big, I've been a food critic in Spokane for four years. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're going to have to link to some things you've written in show notes. Kara, have you read The Coincidence of Coconut Cake by, I don't know who, it came out here in the States back in maybe July? I haven't. Okay. Well, there's a reason I'm not going to recommend it to you today. It's a debut novel, I believe. The general concept is the same. There's a famous chef with a great restaurant, a lot on the line for reasons I can't remember, and she ends up falling in love with the food critic she doesn't know is a food critic. (laughs) So if you want some escapist foodie fiction, that might be for you. That sounds wonderful. It might not be like the best literature you've ever read, but given your specific experience of what you're looking to get out of your books, I think you might enjoy it. Yeah, I think I might. And, and I think it's, I have a really strange, both as an English major and as a library person, I have kind of a strange relationship with literary fiction. I think that I feel like I'm supposed to like it more than I do. Uh And when I'm reading a lot of the time, I am, I am looking for like a, a, a chat with friends or a um, something that, that feels relaxing rather than something that makes my brain have to work terribly hard to figure out what's going on or um, to wrap my, my mind around an idea. So that's kind of nice. Well, way. I admire that you've learned what you like. Ooh, on that note. So Kara, what is it about British chiclet that you find so appealing? You know, I've thought about that a lot. And I thought about that for this, um, this episode. I think that I will start by saying what I don't really connect with, with American chiclet, which is, I don't usually relate to the characters very much. I find that they're often a little bit whiny. I think that, um, that their problems don't seem very real to me. And I'm not sure that the, the problems, um, of British characters are, are more realistic or, or whatever, but there are a lot more quirky and charming things that they say and do and it gives me, it makes me feel a little bit like I'm traveling, but it also makes me feel a little bit classier. You know, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm reading something American, you know, it's, I, I could be having the same conversation with, you know, anyone that I'm interacting with on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. but it is, I feel a little bit more continental, a little bit more um, across the pond when I'm reading British chiclet. And I do find, especially when I listen to them on audiobook, which I sometimes do, that I I start to put on a little bit of a British accent after I've been reading one. <laughs> it makes me sound really elitist. I think I can relate to what you're saying. Like I just plowed through a rather lengthy British mystery series. And I just remember in the series, the the characters were berating their like 12-year-old son for using slang. That the kind of slang that my kids would get in trouble for saying the American equivalent. But what he was saying, what he was getting in trouble for, it just sounded kind of adorable to my my American ears. Yeah, right. it's just not the same well, in a good I, way. And I do think that even though I like to read something that makes me feel like I'm escaping or traveling um, and I don't necessarily want 
a lot when it comes to a complicated plot at the end of the day or whenever I'm trying to read a book like that. I do find that the writing is usually high quality. And so the, the you know, the word choice and the way that they're using language seems to be fairly excellent, even if the, the plot is kind of ridiculous. So that's nice too. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Change of pace. Tell me what you hate. Oh goodness. So many things. <laughs> I'm definitely a book snob, but um, the one that I, I decided to tell you about today is Sloan Crosley's The Clasp. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I wanted to talk about it is because I was so surprised that I hated it. I've been looking forward to this book for a long time. I'm a huge fan of Sloan Crosley's essays in general. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated by the concept of this story. It's It's about, it's kind of a the idea is that there's the story, the clasp, or the story, the necklace, excuse me, um, which is a very famous short story. And it's something that a couple of the characters read in a college class. And then it sort of informs um, the plot of this story. I can't say too much more than that because there really isn't a lot more than that. <laughs> but, but unfortunately, it ended up being a novel filled with characters who felt very elitist East Coast, again, without problems that I felt I could relate to, mm -hmm. even though they were talking about being single and feeling out of place, which is where I am in my life. It it really didn't connect with me. Um, although there were a few lines that I really enjoyed and appreciated, for the most part, the book I didn't feel landed with me, which disappointed me because I, I love Sloane Crosley's writing style and mm -hmm. I love the way that she can tell a story. And I just thought that she didn't do that here. Okay, interesting. What are you reading right now? I am reading a pop science book called Places of the Heart, uh -huh. which is about the psychiography of everyday life. That's a big word I haven't heard before. I did not know that it was a word until I picked up this book. It's essentially like the study of place and how place affects us and our moods. And oh, our that is one of my favorite nerdy topics. I'm definitely looking that up. It's very fascinating. It was a, a case of being at the library and seeing it as as a new a, a book on on the new shelf. Uh -huh. And I I write at least monthly about place um, for you are here, and so it kind of grabbed me and made me want to do that. And also, I'm in the process of trying to figure out what I'm doing space wise. You know, if I if I'm ready to to relocate or if I'm doing different things, and I wanted to mm -hmm. to think about that in terms mm -hmm. of. How that would work. So it's so far very fascinating and so far um, very conversationally written. So it doesn't make me feel like I'm reading a textbook. Mm -hmm. And then the other book that I'm reading is I almost always have a, a reread going. And this year, a while now, but I'm trying to take it slow. I'm reading a book called Alter Call, which is by Hope Lida. And it's the sequel to a book called Hip to Be Square, which is Christian fiction that I initially picked up again at the library just saw as I was browsing and these two books and and then the the third one Life Libby and the Pursuit of Happiness which all sound like very American chick chick lit have ended up being some of the books that I think about the most um on a day-to-day -day basis these characters really did become friends for me and they are funny and they're smart and they have a sense of purpose and they have interesting dreams and they have interesting jobs and they have interesting relationships and they yet also have faith, which I find I, I'm very much a snob about Christian fiction. And I feel that a lot of it is not uh, relatable to me. And so when I found these, I was, I was really excited. I feel like last year, the hip to be square book 
very much fit the life circumstances that I found myself in. Mm-hmm. And so I think that as as I transitioned into this year, it sort of felt like maybe I was moving towards this other one, which does not mean that I'm getting married, by the way, even though it's called Alter Call. <laughs> Um, but it's it. She transitions, you know, the main character who is the same from the first one transitions into um, kind of figuring out what happens when when her dreams come true and sort of what to deal with that. You know, sometimes you change your mind about certain things and such. So it's it's a fascinating book. It's it's fun, but it it still feels like there's substance. That's a good combination. Okay, Kara, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? Well, I really do think that as much as I enjoy being paid to read, I'd really like to have mental space and even just time to read more for fun and and to be able to enjoy that experience and not feel like I'm checking something off my to-do list. So you want reading to be fun again? I do. Okay. Kara, this is great material, and I think I know what direction to go in for you. So we'll, we'll get to my picks right after the break. I can't wait to hear what you think. Hey readers, before we get back to my picks for Kara, now back to my conversation with Kara. Kara, welcome back. Thanks so much. Okay, Kara, let's get to it. So here's what I see when I look at your books. I see a woman who knows what she likes. She knows what she wants out of her reading. It seems like you know that life is hard, but you don't want your reading to be. Does that, is that fair? That's very fair. Okay. So we have novels that aren't necessarily lighthearted, but they are far from heavy. They engage serious topics, but they do so in a way that feels very safe and gentle. Like your nonfiction picks sound like coffee with a friend, not philosophical treatise on the state of the soul. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So I really want reading to be fun for you. So that is top of my list. And you use the word relatable about a dozen times. So (laughs) relatable is our watchword. I also really appreciate how your books seem to indicate that you know your boundaries and are applying that to reading life. And I mean that in a very good and healthy way. So we're going to honor that and hopefully put you back squarely in the place where reading is fun again. Wonderful. I'm really looking forward to it. Let's do it. Book one, it is Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day by Winifred Watson. Heard of it? I have heard of it and I have seen the movie, but I've never read the book. Okay. I am not a book snob when it comes to books versus movies. The book isn't always better, but Mm -hmm. just because you've seen the movie, don't pass on the book because they are, you know, they're different. And as good as Amy Adams is, she is not what I pictured when I read the book. So did you read the book first before you watched the movie? I did. And then I was really excited to see the movie when it came out, and I thought it was well done, but but the book's just lots of fun. And it's also really skinny. This is not a long read, so it's a short, fun... This one is pretty lighthearted, but I don't want to make that sound like a bad thing. It is old. I am in favor of lighthearted. Oh, good, good, good. So the book is old. It was first published in 1938, but don't worry about that. It feels really fresh. It's set in London. So okay. we've got a little bit chiclet channeling going on in the 1930s, and it's a little more risque than I would have expected for that time period. But mm. I wouldn't have any qual. I mean, I do mean for that time period. Like, I wouldn't have any qualms about recommending this to my mom or my grandma. It totally passes the grandma test. Okay. I'm glad that I fall into this category for you. <laughs> to my mom, to Kara, or to my grandma. My trilogy. <laughs> so here's what we have. 
at its heart, this is a Cinderella story. And Miss Pettigrew is the servant girl who finds herself sent to the ball. She's an older woman. She's unemployed. She's down on her luck and she's looking for a job again. And a placement agency sends her to the wrong address. She is supposed to show up for a governess position, but instead of being greeted at the door by a bunch of bratty kids, she's whisked into the house by a glamorous nightclub singer who's delighted to see her, who was desperate for an assistant. And Miss Pettigrew surprises herself by finding she's completely up to the task of extricating her from scrape after scrape after scrape for the next 24 hours. She's living for a day here. And most of the scrapes involve men. And it's just, it's completely charming. And it's a book about grown women, yet the nightclub singer is so (laughs) precocious. She feels like a cousin to the precocious children of that genre you like so much. Okay, wonderful. Okay, what do you think? It sounds perfect. I'm really looking forward to it. And I have no problem going back a little ways to one of the books I just finished was In This House of Breed, which is 1970s set in a in a Catholic monastery, all about nuns over like a 10 year period. So I'm good with with older works as well. All right, good. I'm glad that that sounds promising to you because sometimes the descriptions of books just make you not want to read them. But give it two and a half pages and I think you'll be hooked. I will. And Absolutely. then you'll read it in like an hour and a half. It really is skinny. Excellent. That's the fun of, of a fun book is if you can get through it quickly and it doesn't feel like such a commitment. Oh, yeah. You could read that in an afternoon. Easy. Okay. Oh, book okay. two, we're going nonfiction for you. It okay. is The Kitchen Counter Cooking School by Kathleen Flynn. Do you know anything I, about this one? I own her book, The, what is it? The Sharper Your Knife, The Less You Cry but I have not read it. So I have not read anything by her. A lot of people recognize that her from that one. I think it's her first and it did quite well, like commercially and good reviews, solid writing, all that. This is a nice follow-up to it. So Flynn is, I believe she's a food writer in Seattle. So not too far away from you. And uh-huh. here's what happens. So she's at the grocery store one night and she bumps into a woman whose cart is filled with like Doritos and Cheez-Its and Easy Cheese and Graham Crackers. Flynn and this woman strike up a conversation and it comes out that the woman simply literally can't cook anything. So Flynn realizes standing there in the cereal aisle or wherever she is that this is real life and this happens all the time. So she has this epiphany that she has the skill. She needs to teach people how to cook because it can totally change their lives. So she collects nine volunteers. They are all completely non-cooks and she brings them to her place for weekly cooking lessons. And that is the kitchen counter cooking school. The idea being that you can only learn by doing and she is going to teach them how to do. So it is lots of fun, very relatable. You feel like you might enjoy the story a little bit more if you were actually at that kitchen counter, but this book is the next best thing. So Her belief in the power of home cooking is completely contagious. She's like funny and friendly and you just, you feel like you're there. And also if you have any desire to be a better cook or to explore that world a little bit or to see, I don't know, maybe the home cooking aspect after you've been wearing the food critic hat, it, it might be right up your alley. It has recipes too, but I didn't use a single one. That's not why I read the book and you don't, you don't have to want to actually cook from the book to enjoy the book. Okay. I have to say that it seems like it's possible that you are living inside my brain (laughs) because even though I'm a food critic, I'm a very anxious cook and that's where a lot of my writing comes from. And it's, it's also just something that I deal with every day because food unfortunately comes up every day. If I had a personal chef, that would be really wonderful. And I could just go to him and say him, 
or her, if I could just go to this personal chef and say, please make me this thing and here's the recipe for it. And, you know, that would be wonderful. But unfortunately, that is not in my budget. I wonder if um, your standards are high because of your food critic experience. Oh, that's, that is the whole premise of my book is that I started writing about food before I learned how to cook. And so there are chefs that don't make, meet my standards. So it makes complete sense to me that I would not meet my own standards mm -hmm. as a beginning cook. And so that gives me a lot of anxiety. I'm very good at making cocktails. Um, <laughs> I don't understand why these are two separate things because I, I can walk into a bar anywhere and just create a cocktail out of thin air, which I'm told is similar to cooking. Maybe it's like um, the difference between cooking and baking. I wonder where cocktail mixing falls into that spectrum well, because baking I'm, is chemistry and cooking is something else. So what's yeah. cocktail making? I don't know. It's, it's mixology, but that, that book sounds wonderful. And I think that I would relate to a lot of the topics, both as a food writer, as well as kind of the woman with all of the stuff in her cart. I do buy a lot of pre-made guacamole from Trader Joe's. Please don't judge me. <laughs> it keeps in the fridge a lot longer than avocados though. That's what I tell myself. It's true. It does. Mm -hmm. And the um, spicy kind is not bad. The regular kind, I, I can't countenance, but um, the spicy one actually tastes like I could have made it. High praise. I love Trader Joe's, but that's another podcast. It's okay. so true. Well, I wish I knew the recipes off the top of my head that were in this book because now I'm dying to know if they sound like things you would want to learn to make. I hope they are. Yeah. Well, I'll let you know. Okay. I can't wait to hear. All right. Book three. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. It's The Beekeeper's Apprentice by Lori King. What do you know about it? Is Lori King the one who has written about Sherlock Holmes? <gasps> yes. This is okay. the one. This is the first book in the series. So okay. it is Sherlock, updated, redrawn, plus a teenager. One of the things about working in a library is that you're exposed to so many different books and have familiarity with so many of them without having read them because there's just so many that are coming at you all the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm aware of The Beekeeper's Apprentice and I know that a lot of people love it, but I haven't ever picked it up myself. Well, and I could see how it's stick in your mind because the cover of the most recent edition is totally eye-catching. It looks like a honeycomb. It's black and gold. It would stand Ooh. out to you on the shelves. So if I... I were still a library shelver, I would put it on the end cap facing out. <laughs> that was always my favorite part of my job. <laughs> I felt a certain sense of satisfaction when I would come up with something and display it, you know, whether it was for a holiday or for a theme that we came up with. And then I felt this personal sense of satisfaction when people checked out that book as if I'd actually sold it. Well, and there's a lot of responsibility there too, because I'm sure people are vastly more likely to check out those facing out books on the end of the aisles, as opposed to the ones wedged in really tight with only three quarters of an inch of spine showing on the actual shelves. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds like it'd be a fun part of the job. Okay. So this falls into your precocious children genre. Our heroine is 15-year-old Mary Russell. So, you know, she's not exactly a child, but she's kind of at an awkward age, you know, still growing up and coming into her own. So, well, that's the truth, but we're going to project onto the 15-year-old today. So we have Sherlock. I feel like I'm on a first name basis with him after, after seeing the series. I'm totally picturing Benedict Cumberbatch right now. Yes. 
So he's long been in retirement when this book starts, studying the honeybees in Sussex, which is exactly where Arthur Conan Doyle left him at the end of the series. So Laurie King's totally building off that. But of course, their paths cross, Mary Russell and Sherlock. And when they do meet, he's struck by her smarts. He never thought he'd meet his intellectual equal, but Russell, because he calls her Russell, has him wondering if maybe that person is really out there and maybe it's her. So he takes her under his wing and he starts teaching her all about detection. Is that the noun? He starts teaching her everything he knows. But of course, something startling happens and it sets the plot off in a whole new direction. And it's a really fun ride. Great character, smart mystery, really ingenious. What do you think? It sounds great. And one of the things that you've said, which I appreciate, is that you have kind of seen that I have some boundaries and that I want a read that's a little bit more gentle. So I'm assuming that if you're recommending a mystery, it's not going to be filled with gore and horror and such. No, I think the marketers categorize this as a YA book. And I mean, I guess a lot of YA books these days, wow, I sound like such, I sound so old. A lot of YA books do have a lot of content that maybe I wouldn't choose for myself. But um, no, this is, this is gentle. She sounds like a character who's similar to Flavia Deleuze a little bit, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, who is very intelligent and sort of misunderstood. So I'm looking forward to diving into it. Okay. I hope you enjoy it. Kara, what do you think you'll read next? You know, this is such a difficult question. I think that I'm going to go immediately when we get off this call and um, put these books on hold at the library. And so maybe I'll let the library decide and we'll see what comes in first. Oh, your fate is in the library's hands. Always. I like it. That sounds great. Thanks for talking books with me today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Anne. Hey, everyone. I love chatting with Kara, and I hope you enjoyed it, too. You can connect more with Kara at her blog, karastrickland.com, or on Twitter, where I am delighted to say she recently changed her handle to at anxiouscook. I'm not happy she's anxious, but I think in light of our conversation, it's pretty perfect. Before we go, don't forget to sign up for the What Should I Read Next newsletter. I just sent out the first one of these last week. I want it to be a fun and informative resource for the reading life, and you'll also be the first to know about any new happenings here with the show. Just go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter and sign up there. Thanks again so much for listening. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Readers, that's it for this episode. As Reiner Maria Rilke says, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On A Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. 
Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.